0: Chapters one through seventeen of the Enchiridion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Darren L. Slider. www.logoslibrary.org. The Enchiridion by Saint Augustine. Translated by Professor J. F. Shaw chapter one i cannot express my beloved son laurentius the delight with which i witness your progress in knowledge and the earnest desire i have that you should be a wise man not one of those of whom it is said where is the wise where is the scribe where is the disputer of this world hath not god made foolish the wisdom of this world but one of those of whom it is said the multitude of the wise is the welfare of the world and such as the apostle wishes those to become, whom he tells, I would have you wise unto that which is good, and simple concerning evil. Now just as no one can exist of himself, so no one can be wise of himself, but only by the enlightening influence of him of whom it is written, All wisdom cometh from the Lord. Chapter 2 The true wisdom of man is piety. You find this in the book of Holy Job. For we read there what wisdom itself has said to man. Behold, the fear of the Lord, pietas, that is wisdom. If you ask further what is meant in that place by pietas, the Greek calls it more definitely theosebeia, that is, the worship of God. The Greeks sometimes call piety eusebeia, which signifies right worship, though this, of course, refers specially to the worship of God. But when we are defining in what man's true wisdom consists, the most convenient word to use is that which distinctly expresses the fear of God. And can you, who are anxious that I should treat of great matters in few words, wish for a briefer form of expression? Or perhaps you are anxious that this expression should itself be briefly explained, and that I should unfold in a short discourse the proper mode of worshipping God? CHAPTER three. Now if I should answer that God is to be worshipped with faith, hope, and love, you will at once say that this answer is too brief, and will ask me briefly to unfold the objects of each of these three graces, what we are to believe, what we are to hope for, and what we are to love. And when I have done this, you will have an answer to all the questions you asked in your letter. If you have kept a copy of your letter, you can easily turn it up and read it over again. If you have not... You will have no difficulty in recalling it when I refresh your memory. CHAPTER four. You are anxious, you say, that I should write a sort of handbook for you, which you might always keep beside you, containing answers to the questions you put. What ought to be man's chief end in life? What he ought, in view of the various heresies, chiefly to avoid? To what extent religion is supported by reason? What there is in reason that lends no support to faith when faith stands alone? What is the starting point, what the goal of religion? What is the sum of the whole body of doctrine? What is the sure and proper foundation of the Catholic faith? Now undoubtedly you will know the answers to all these questions if you know thoroughly the proper objects of faith, hope, and love. For these must be the chief, nay, the exclusive objects of pursuit in religion. He who speaks against these is either a total stranger to the name of Christ, or is a heretic. These are to be defended by reason which must have its starting point either in the bodily senses or in the intuitions of the mind. And what we have neither had experience of through our bodily senses, nor have been able to reach through the intellect, must undoubtedly be believed in the testimony of those witnesses by whom the Scriptures, justly called divine, were written, and who by divine assistance were enabled, Others through bodily sense or intellectual perception, to see or to foresee the things in question. CHAPTER five. Moreover, when the mind has been imbued with the first elements of that faith which worketh by love, it endeavours by purity of life to attain unto sight, where the pure and perfect in heart know that unspeakable beauty, the full vision of which is supreme happiness. Here, surely, is an answer to your question as to what is the starting point and what the goal? We begin in faith, and are made perfect by sight. This also is the sum of the whole body of doctrine. But the sure and proper foundation of the Catholic faith is Christ. For other foundation, says the Apostle, can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Nor are we to deny that this is the proper foundation of the Catholic faith, because it may be supposed that some heretics hold this in common with us. For if we carefully consider the things that pertain to Christ, we shall find that among these heretics who call themselves Christians, Christ is present in name only. Indeed, and in truth, he is not among them. But to show this would occupy us too long, for we should require to go over all the heresies which have existed, which do exist, or which could exist, under the Christian name, and to show that this is true in the case of each, a discussion which would occupy so many volumes as to be all but interminable. Chapter 6. Now you ask of me a handbook, that is, one that can be carried in the hand, not one to load your shelves. To return, then, to the three graces through which, as I have said, God should be worshipped, faith, hope, and love, to state what are the true and proper objects of each of these is easy. But to defend this true doctrine against the assaults of those who hold an opposite opinion requires much fuller and more elaborate instruction. And the true way to obtain this instruction is not to have a short treatise put into one's hands, but to have a great zeal kindled in one's heart. Chapter 7 For you have the creed and the Lord's prayer. What can be briefer to hear or to read? What easier to commit to memory? When, as the result of sin, the human race was groaning under a heavy load of misery, and was in urgent need of the divine compassion, one of the prophets, anticipating the time of God's grace, declared, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. Hence the Lord's Prayer. But the Apostle, when for the purpose of commending this very grace, had quoted this prophetic testimony, he immediately added, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? Hence the Creed. In these two you have those three graces exemplified. Faith believes, hope and love pray. But without faith the last two cannot exist, And therefore we may say that faith also prays. Whence it is written, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? CHAPTER eight. Again, can anything be hoped for which is not an object of faith? It is true that a thing which is not an object of hope may be believed. What true Christian, for example, does not believe in the punishment of the wicked, and yet such an one does not hope for it? and the man who believes that punishment to be hanging over himself and who shrinks in horror from the prospect is more properly said to fear than to hope. In these two states of mind the poet carefully distinguishes when he says, Permit the fearful to have hope. Another poet, who is usually much superior to this one, makes a wrong use of the word when he says, If I have been able to hope for so great a grief as this. And some grammarians take this case as an example of impropriety of speech saying, He said sperare, to hope, instead of timere, to fear. Accordingly, faith may have for its object evil as well as good, for both good and evil are believed, and the faith that believes them is not evil but good. Faith, moreover, is concerned with the past, the present, and the future, all three. We believe, for example, that Christ died, an event in the past. We believe that he is sitting at the right hand of God, a state of things which is present. We believe that he will come to judge the quick and the dead, an event of the future. Again, faith applies both to one's own circumstances and those of others. Everyone for example believes that his own existence had a beginning and was not eternal, and he believes the same both of other men and other things. Many of our beliefs in regard to religious matters, again, have reference not merely to other men, but to angels also. But hope has for its object only what is good only what is future, and only what affects the man who entertains the hope. For these reasons, then, faith must be distinguished from hope, not merely as a matter of verbal propriety, but because they are essentially different. The fact that we do not see either what we believe or what we hope for is all that is common to faith and hope. In the Epistle to the Hebrews, for example, faith is defined, and eminent defenders of the Catholic faith have used the definition as a standard, the evidence of things not seen. Although should any one say that he believes, that is, has grounded his faith, not on words, nor on witnesses, nor on any reasoning whatever, but on the direct evidence of his own senses, he would not be guilty of such an impropriety of speech as to be justly liable to the criticism, You saw, therefore you did not believe. And hence it does not follow that an object of faith is not an object of sight. But it is better that we should use the word faith as the scriptures have taught us, applying it to those things which are not seen. Concerning hope, again, the apostle says, Hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. When, then, we believe that good is about to come, this is nothing else but to hope for it. Now what shall I say of love? Without it, faith profits nothing, and in its absence hope cannot exist. The Apostle James says, The devils also believe and tremble. That is, they, having neither hope nor love, but believing that what we love and hope for is about to come, are in terror. And so the Apostle Paul approves and commends the faith that worketh by love, and this certainly cannot exist without hope. Wherefore, there is no love without hope, No hope without love and neither love nor hope without faith chapter 9 when then the question is asked what we are to believe in regard to religion it is not necessary to probe into the nature of things as was done by those whom the Greeks call physici nor need we be in alarm lest the Christian should be ignorant of the force and number of the elements the motion and order and eclipses of the heavenly bodies the form of the heavens the species and the natures of animals, plants, stones, fountains, rivers, mountains, about chronology and distances, the signs of coming storms, and a thousand other things which those philosophers either have found out or think they have found out. For even these men themselves, endowed though they are with so much genius, burning with zeal, abounding in leisure, tracking some things by the aid of human conjecture, searching into others with the aids of history and experience, have not found out all things, and even their boasted discoveries are oftener mere guesses than certain knowledge. It is enough for the Christian to believe that the only cause of all created things, whether heavenly or earthly, whether visible or invisible, is the goodness of the Creator, the one true God, and that nothing exists but Himself that does not derive its existence from Him, and that He is the Trinity, to wit, the Father and the Son, begotten of the Father, and the Holy Spirit proceeding from the same Father, but one and the same Spirit of Father and Son. Chapter 10 By the Trinity, thus supremely and equally and unchangeably good, all things were created. And these are not supremely and equally and unchangeably good, but yet they are good, even taken separately. Taken as a whole, however, they are very good, because their ensemble constitutes the universe in all its wonderful order and beauty. Chapter 11. And in the universe even that which is called evil, when it is regulated and put in its own place, only enhances our admiration of the good. For we enjoy and value the good more when we compare it with the evil. For the Almighty God, who, as even the heathen acknowledge, has supreme power over all things, being himself supremely good, would never permit the existence of anything evil among his works, if he were not so omnipotent and good that he can bring good even out of evil. For what is that which we call evil but the absence of good? In the bodies of animals, disease and wounds mean nothing but the absence of health. For when a cure is effected, that does not mean that the evils which were present, namely the diseases and wounds, go away from the body and dwell elsewhere. They altogether cease to exist. For the wound or disease is not a substance, but a defect in the fleshly substance, The flesh itself being a substance, and therefore something good, of which those evils, that is, privations of the good which we call health, are accidents. Just in the same way, what are called vices in the soul are nothing but privations of natural good. And when they are cured, they are not transferred elsewhere. When they cease to exist in the healthy soul, they cannot exist anywhere else. CHAPTER Twelve. All things that exist therefore seeing that the creator of them all is supremely good are themselves good but because they are not like their creator supremely and unchangeably good their good may be diminished and increased but for good to be diminished is an evil although however much it may be diminished it is necessary if the being is to continue that some good should remain to constitute the being for however small or of whatever kind the being may be THE GOOD WHICH MAKES IT A BEING CANNOT BE DESTROYED WITHOUT DESTROYING THE BEING ITSELF. AN UNCORRUPTED NATURE IS JUSTLY HELD IN ESTEEM, BUT IF, STILL FURTHER, IT BE INCORRUPTIBLE, IT IS UNDOUBTEDLY CONSIDERED OF STILL HIGHER VALUE. WHEN IT IS CORRUPTED, HOWEVER, ITS CORRUPTION IS AN EVIL BECAUSE IT IS DEPRIVED OF SOME SORT OF GOOD. FOR IF IT BE DEPRIVED OF NO GOOD, IT RECEIVES NO INJURY. BUT IT DOES RECEIVE INJURY, THEREFORE IT IS DEPRIVED OF GOOD. Therefore, so long as a being is in process of corruption, there is in it some good of which it is being deprived. And if a part of the being should remain which cannot be corrupted, this will certainly be an incorruptible being, and accordingly the process of corruption will result in the manifestation of this great good. But if it do not cease to be corrupted, neither can it cease to possess good of which corruption may deprive it. But if it should be thoroughly and completely consumed by corruption, There will then be no good left, because there will be no being. Wherefore, corruption can consume the good only by consuming the being. Every being, therefore, is a good, a great good if it cannot be corrupted, a little good if it can, but in any case only the foolish or ignorant will deny that it is a good. And if it be wholly consumed by corruption, then the corruption itself must cease to exist, as there is no being left in which it can dwell. Chapter 13 Accordingly, there is nothing of what we call evil if there be nothing good. But a good which is wholly without evil is a perfect good. A good, on the other hand, which contains evil, is a faulty or imperfect good. And there can be no evil where there is no good. From all this we arrive at the curious result, that since every being, so far as it is a being, is good, when we say that a faulty being is an evil being, we just seem to say that what is good is evil, and that nothing but what is good can be evil, seeing that every being is good, and that no evil can exist except in a being. Nothing, then, can be evil except something which is good. And although this, when stated, seems to be a contradiction, yet the strictness of reasoning leaves us no escape from the conclusion. We must, however, beware of incurring the prophetic condemnation. Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil, that put darkness for light, and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And yet our Lord says, an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. Now what is an evil man but an evil being? For a man is a being. Now if a man is a good thing because he is a being, what is an evil man but an evil good? Yet when we accurately distinguish these two things, we find that it is not because he is a man that he is an evil, or because he is wicked that he is a good, but that he is a good because he is a man, and an evil because he is wicked. Whoever then says, To be a man is an evil, or to be wicked is a good, falls under the prophetic denunciation, Woe unto them that call evil good, and good evil. For he condemns the work of God, which is the man, and praises the defect of man, which is the wickedness. Therefore every being, even if it be a defective one, in so far as it is a being, is good and, in so far as it is defective, is evil. Chapter 14 Accordingly, in the case of these contraries which we call good and evil, the rule of the logicians, that two contraries cannot be predicated at the same time of the same thing, does not hold. No weather is at the same time dark and bright. No food or drink is at the same time sweet and bitter. No body is at the same time and in the same place, black and white, none is at the same time and in the same place deformed and beautiful. And this rule is found to hold in regard to many, indeed nearly all, contraries, that they cannot exist at the same time in any one thing. But although no one can doubt that good and evil are contraries, not only can they exist at the same time, but evil cannot exist without good, or in anything that is not good. Good, however, can exist without evil. For a man or an angel can exist without being wicked. BUT NOTHING CAN BE WICKED EXCEPT A MAN OR AN ANGEL, AND SO FAR AS HE IS A MAN OR AN ANGEL HE IS GOOD, SO FAR AS HE IS WICKED HE IS AN EVIL, AND THESE TWO CONTRARIES ARE SO FAR coexistent THAT IF GOOD DID NOT EXIST IN WHAT IS EVIL, NEITHER COULD EVIL EXIST, BECAUSE CORRUPTION COULD NOT HAVE EITHER A PLACE TO DWELL IN, OR A SOURCE TO SPRING FROM, IF THERE WERE NOTHING THAT COULD BE CORRUPTED, AND NOTHING CAN BE CORRUPTED EXCEPT WHAT IS GOOD, FOR CORRUPTION IS NOTHING ELSE BUT THE DESTRUCTION OF GOOD. From what is good, then, evils arose; and except in what is good they do not exist, nor was there any other source from which any evil nature could arise; for if there were, then, in so far as this was a being, it was certainly a good; and a being which was incorruptible would be a great good, and even one which was corruptible must be to some extent a good, for only by corrupting what was good in it could corruption do it harm. Chapter fifteen. But when we say that evil springs out of good, let it not be thought that this contradicts our Lord's saying, A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. For as he who is the truth says, you cannot gather grapes of thorns, because grapes do not grow on thorns. But we see that on good soil both vines and thorns may be grown. And in the same way, just as an evil tree cannot bring forth good fruit, so an evil will cannot produce good works. But from the nature of man which is good, may spring either a good or an evil will. And certainly there was at first no source from which an evil will could spring, except the nature of angel or of man which was good. And our Lord himself clearly shows this in the very same place where he speaks about the tree and its fruit. For he says, Either make the tree good, and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt, and his fruit corrupt. Clearly enough warning us that evil fruits do not grow on a good tree, nor good fruits on an evil tree but that nevertheless the ground itself by which he meant those whom he was then addressing might grow either kind of trees chapter sixteen now in view of these considerations when we are pleased with that line of morrow happy the man who has attained to the knowledge of the causes of things We should not suppose that it is necessary to happiness to know the causes of the great physical convulsions, causes which lie hid in the most secret recesses of nature's kingdom, whence comes the earthquake whose force makes the deep seas to swell and burst their barriers, and again to return upon themselves and settle down. But we ought to know the causes of good and evil as far as man may in this life know them, in order to avoid the mistakes and troubles of which this life is so full. For our aim must always be to reach that state of happiness in which no trouble shall distress us, and no error mislead us. If we must know the causes of physical convulsions, there are none which it concerns us more to know than those which affect our own health. But seeing that, in our ignorance of these, we are fain to resort to physicians, it would seem that we might bear with considerable patience our ignorance of the secrets that lie hid in the earth and heavens. CHAPTER Seventeen. For although we ought with the greatest possible care to avoid error, not only in great, but even in little things, and although we cannot err except through ignorance, it does not follow that if a man is ignorant of a thing, he must forthwith fall into error. That is rather the fate of the man who thinks he knows what he does not know. For he accepts what is false as if it were true, and that is the essence of error. But it is a point of very great importance what the subject is in regard to which a man makes a mistake for on one and the same subject we rightly prefer an instructed man to an ignorant one, and a man who is not an error to one who is. In the case of different subjects, however, that is, when one man knows one thing, and another a different thing, and when what the former knows is useful, and what the latter knows is not so useful, or is actually hurtful, who would not, in regard to the things the latter knows, prefer the ignorance of the former to the knowledge of the latter? For there are points on which ignorance is better than knowledge and, in the same way, it has sometimes been an advantage to depart from the right way, in travelling, however, not in morals. It has happened to myself to take the wrong road where two ways met, so that I did not pass by the place where an armed band of Donatists lay in wait for me. Yet I arrived at the place whither I was bent, though by a roundabout route, and when I heard of the ambush, I congratulated myself on my mistake, and gave thanks to God for it. Now who would not rather be the traveller who made a mistake like this, than the highwayman, who made no mistake. And hence perhaps it is that the Prince of Poets puts these words into the mouth of a lover in misery. How I am undone! How I have been carried away by an evil error! For there is an error which is good, as it not merely does no harm, but produces some actual advantage. But when we look more closely into the nature of truth, and consider that to err is just to take the false for the true, and the true for the false, or to hold what is certain as uncertain, and what is uncertain as certain, and that error in the soul is hideous and repulsive, just in proportion as it appears fair and plausible when we utter it, or assent to it, saying, Yea, yea, nay, nay. Surely this life that we live is wretched indeed, if only on this account that sometimes, in order to preserve it, it is necessary to fall into error. God forbid that such should be that other life, where truth itself is the life of the soul, where no one deceives, and no one is deceived. But here men deceive and are deceived, and they are more to be pitied when they lead others astray than when they are themselves led astray by putting trust in liars. Yet so much does a rational soul shrink from what is false, and so earnestly does it struggle against error, that even those who love to deceive are most unwilling to be deceived. For the liar does not think that he errs, but that he leads another who trusts him into error. And certainly he does not err in regard to the matter about which he lies, if he himself knows the truth. But he is deceived in this, that he thinks his lie does him no harm, whereas every sin is more hurtful to the sinner than to the sinned against. End of Chapters 1 through 17, recorded by Darren L. Slider, Fort Worth, Texas, on April 10, 2007.